welcome to another episode of Confessions of a Keyboardist. I'm Amy Frederick, and I'm here today with Brett Sandler. Hey, everybody. How are you? Yeah, doing well. How are you doing, Brett? Not too bad. Uh, I know you've been sick, so... <laughs> yeah, that's that's been fun. Not really, but it's it's been fun. That Middle Tennessee allergy... Oh, yeah. Uh, allergy bowl, I think I get killed it. every year with it. Do you yeah, really? Absolutely. How long have you been in Nashville? <sighs> two years now. Is so. that all? Yeah, only two years. I moved here April 15th of 2017. I think so. I met you right after you moved here. I think so, because... Where we know each other from is Loud Jams, and I did my first Loud Jams, I want to say June or July of the year that I had gotten there. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. And I remember telling you, you were not going to have any trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Getting work. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Has my prophecy uh, come true? I would say for the most part, yeah. (laughs) I think like most musicians, um, I... So I have a steady volume of things that I get to do, but like most of us, I'd like to be doing more, and I'd obviously like to be doing it on a bigger level, but you know, I'm fine with where I'm at for two years. For, for two years of slogging away in this town, things have been pretty good, so. Excellent. Yeah. Where did you come here from? So I came here from Connecticut. Um, I grew up in Rocky Hill, Connecticut, and then I was living in West Hartford, Connecticut after college, and I was working there as a gigging musician and also as a piano teacher. Okay. Yeah. Where is Rocky Hill? What's that near? So it's a little bit south of Hartford, like five or ten minutes. It's okay. right smack dab in the center of the state. Um, okay. On the 91 corridor, as we call it. <laughs> okay. I've never been to Connecticut. So. Connecticut is kind of like a, most of the population is sort of in an upside down T. So it's all along the shoreline, which is, you know, uh, borders the Long Island Sound and borders, you know, the sound kind of, um, you know, straddles Connecticut and New York City and Long Island. Gotcha. And then the rest of the population is right up the central part of Connecticut. So okay. You can think of it as kind of like an upside down T. It makes sense to me. I can visualize that pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, how far are you from New York City in that town? Well, <laughs> you should be about two hours with traffic. Yeah. Who knows? I gotcha. <laughs> Four, five, six, oh, you know, you know however long it takes to get into the city. So. Okay. So it's very, it's very congested. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know everyone in Nashville likes to complain about our traffic, but mm-hmm. they haven't seen traffic. Really? <laughs> I'm sorry to say. <laughs> and you're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, seriously laughing. laughing at us. <laughs> it takes, it, in New York City, just to like go a couple blocks or, you know, try and get from one borough to the other, you know, around traffic-y times, which is really, you know, anywhere between let's say, any time that is not 11 a.m. through 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. and after, like, 9 p.m. Yes. Know? And, of course, that's all, that can all be, you know, changed in the matter of a moment, too. Yeah. It'll take, like, 30 to 45 minutes to get somewhere in the city. I, I remember being in Brooklyn uh, with some buddies who I used to play music with, and I think we were trying to get to someone's house, and it took us about an hour and a half to get from where we were in Brooklyn to somewhere else. And we're talking about a distance of just a couple miles. Oh so, my gosh, wow. Yeah. So. And is that your hometown, Rocky Hill? Yeah, that's, that's where I grew up. So, so you lived there your entire childhood? Yeah, pre, yeah absolutely. Pre-college years? Oh yeah, yeah, I've been there basically my whole life, so. Oh wow, okay. So um, what, do you, what kind of gigs are you doing right now? And here in Nashville? 
Okay, so I do quite a mix of things. Um, I have some artists that I play for. Let me do the math here real quick. <laughs> I'll just say six. I'll just approximate real quick. So about six different artists that I play for wow. regularly. Um, How do you shuffle that kind of? Thing? Well, most of these artists are in the stage of their career where they're not playing, you know, every weekend, and they're not playing. Uh, you know, two or three times in that weekend. So one of them may have a gig on one particular Saturday of the month, and then the next one might have it on this this point. And so they are all not quite busy enough yet in their career where okay. I can sort of juggle all of them. Oh wow! And but if I were playing with someone who is busier, I would you know have to be obviously forced to sort of condensed down a bit so. yeah how do you juggle that many songs I mean that, that's how many songs per artist <laughs> um, so everything gets charted I mean that's that's a big thing yeah. so anyone looking to come in uh, do the musician thing in Nashville has to learn how to chart Nashville numbers and you gotta chart everything that you play because when you're playing with artists and you don't play that often it's infrequent mm -hmm. you forget material yes. so I'll be honest every time I pick back up with an artist, I kind of have to sit down, take a look at my charts, listen to the music, and do a little refresher. Yeah. Some of the artists I've been playing with for a really long time, and that music is way more internalized. Yeah. Excuse me. But uh, not all of them. Yeah. So a lot of them I have to sit down and kind of go back through the music and sort of do a little brush up every time I play with them. Gotcha. And do they expect you to play basically what's on the record? For the most part, that is the expectation. It varies. Okay. Um, one artist that I work for in particular, I have a lot more freedom with. But for the most part, a lot of the pop country um, and more mainstream country artists that I'm working with, they basically have you know a sound on the record, and the live representation of that has to be as close as possible. Now, granted, I'm one keyboard player, and a lot of these situations... We're not running tracks, so sometimes I'm kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm sort of constrained by the reality of being a human being with only two hands. Yeah. Um, so running tracks would be if you were playing with a pre-recorded um, version of the song. Right. And therefore, right. you could have some keyboard parts covered. Yeah, and only have absolutely. to cover one or two parts. So nowadays they put so many little random noises on pop country records and things like that. You know, <laughs> little synth fills here, little strange sounds here. You know, <laughs> apart from, you know, your usual uh, main suspects, your piano, your roads, and especially your organ yeah. in, the, in the world of country. So Yeah? Yeah, so most of what I do in, with the artists that I work for right now is playing... Mostly piano and organ, some synth stuff, um, but for the most part, it's right kind of down that piano, organ, Rhodes lane, which is pretty typical for country music, um, and a little more synth stuff for you know the stuff that has more of a pop slant. Yeah. Um, most of the synth work that I do is outside of that in the cover band and right. working band world, and I do quite a bit of that as well too. Okay. Um, I work for. What is it now? So I, I work for two different cover bands um, or working bands or get corporate bands, however you want to call them. Back where I'm from, they used to be called GB bands, which is just general business bands. Okay. Um, you know, it's like a Berkeley term. You know, oh. I kind of got 
adopted and spread through the Northeast, or wedding bands if they did weddings. So, okay. Um, and one of those is called Party of the Year, which is actually based in Birmingham. So I travel for that quite a bit. Gotcha. And then the other band is based here out of Nashville, but we mostly do travel gigs. That's called Top Tier. Okay. Um, now, Party of the Year is an offshoot of something called Black Jacket Symphony. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. I'm not. So Black Jacket Symphony is a production company, if you will, that puts on a show where they play an iconic album note for note, song for song. Okay. And they're popular kind of in the Alabama area, and you know they also kind of travel around as well, too. Okay. So they'll do stuff like Damn the Torpedoes, okay. Night at the Opera, um, wow. Led Zeppelin IV, which All I've right. done with them. Yeah. And the big show that I did with them was... Uh, the Talking Heads have a live concert called Stop Making Sense. Yeah. So I did that one, and I did all the synth programming and everything for that. Okay. It was actually a two-keyboard player show, and I did all the synth programming for myself and the other keyboard players. Wow. So. Did you play with tracks for that? To no. Do that? No, we did that all organic. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So which, um, which gosh, I have some, I am thinking of so many things I want to ask you that I'm just freaking out right now. So. Please. <laughs> I'm just, Please, I'm happy to answer. I rarely get to talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> yes. Okay. So which boards did you use for that? So believe it or not, I played the entirety of that show on one 61 key M audio code Dang. 61 MIDI controller. Man. And okay. I used main stage, which is you okay. know a live DAW or soft synth as um, it's commonly known to control all of my sounds. Yeah. And I used a third-party plugin for that show in particular. So the gear that was used um, for that show were the Prophet 5 synthesizers. Okay. A pretty famous synthesizer that was sort of ubiquitous at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a polyphonic synthesizer with memory. And that just basically means you, it was called the Prophet 5 because you could get up to five voices with it. And, uh, you know, it's basically it's an analog synth. So you have two oscillators, you know, with a choice of, you know, square sign or saw wave. Um, <clears throat> and so that was both keyboard players in that show used the Prophet 5, and then there was also an Oberheim um, clavinet, like the, I think it's the, o or sorry, not Oberheim, I, I'm forgetting the name of the, the famous clav. Honer. The Honer, there we go, not Oberheim, Honer, something else with like that OH sound. Right. Uh, so they have the Honer, I think the D6, Yeah. and then they had one of those emu boards, like the first, you know, emulator boards, Yeah. you know, the one where those famous orchestra stab sounds come yeah. from, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I bought a third-party plugin designed to emulate the Prophet 5 so that I could have the same interface that they were working with. Okay. Um, and that gave me a good basis to start with for doing all the sound design. Gotcha. So, so do you, like, what happens if you're, like, um, hearing a sound and you don't have a clue what it is? How did you, <laughs> how do you search that out? How do you be uh, a keyboard detective that... Welcome to my nightmare. Um... <laughs> I mean, I would think that that would be. Um, uh, is that a puzzle you enjoy solving? If you're yes and that? yes and no. Sometimes it can be really rewarding, and yeah. other times it's just brutally frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you like a perfect example. Um, so, Mainstage is built off of Logic's platform, so it has all of Logic's built-in sounds. Right. Um, 
And for the most part, that covers a lot of ground, but it doesn't cover everything. So we were just talking about orchestra stabs, right? Which yeah. is basically, you know, an orchestra playing a note and then they chop it. Mm-hmm. And then you can, you know, trigger each one on a key. And, you know, if you think of um, the owner of a lonely heart, it's really like the yeah. perfect example mm-hmm. of the... Yeah. Those, those orchestra stabs. Exactly. Um, and I didn't know what made that sound or where to get it or how to generate it. And I, it didn't even occur to me that it, they were real ans- instruments that have been sampled. And so we had a show for Loud Jams where I had to play um, uh, this 80s version of I'm Gonna Tear Your Playhouse Down. And it had a bunch of orchestra stabs sampled in there. And I spent <laughs> hours, and I mean hours, trying to figure something out that would be close. And really, because, you know, I was born in 87. So okay. the whole the whole world of synthesizers and a lot of like that knowledge base were for players who were active in the 80s. Right. You know, it's, it's kind of come back, but the real, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, the real nuts and bolts of it and understanding it, the players who went through the 80s on the vintage gear, they, they think about it and they can hear things and understand things so much better. So, I, you know, I just, I wasn't part of that era. Right. So I just had no clue what to type into Google, like what to call that. I was looking at all these different patches that said like techno hit or this <laughs> or that. Like some, in other words, sometimes the way that they list out sounds, especially in sound libraries, they don't list it out with like, this say like, okay, um, you know, this sound from this iconic record, yeah. right? They're not saying like, hey, here's the little squirrely sound at the beginning of your favorite track, right? You don't right. you don't get that. Right. Um, right. Instead, they say it's like, you know, techno hit or, uh, you know, pulse pad. or And so you kind of have to almost take the sound and put it into words and then start looking through the library of sounds that you have and say like, well, okay, that kind of fits you know what I'm thinking of but then sometimes they call the thing stuff like shimmering clouds and you're like this is not <laughs> helpful and you got to scroll through all that and make sure yeah. yeah so in the early days doing sound design was really really frustrating yeah um, <laughs> what would what started to happen though is that as I did more sound design I knew where particular sounds were in my library of sounds which was primarily logic at the time and then I could start to kind of hear things on records and know that I had something that was close. And yeah. then from there, I could kind of tweak parameters, you know, inside. So the way that they have, the way that these build these sounds, these virtual instruments, is they're usually made, um, they have some kind of like plug-in, if you will, that you open up and you, you control it from there. And so all of the built-in parameters are there. And so. You, like if you if the plugin is say the ES2 synthesizer, which is built into Logic, you can open up the ES2, you can see all of the controls that you would be able to change, and then you can alter all of those to change the sound in whatever way you want. And essentially, all of the sounds are built by just manipulating the parameters inside of the software, right? right. All of their presets, if you will. So really, you you could recreate all of their presets if you wanted to. Uh, so you get close, you find something that's pretty close, and then you could tweak. That was kind of the dark ages of sound design. Yeah. But then when I did the Talking Heads show, 
I had to do a really deep dive into synthesis in order to really figure out what was going on because there were just so many different types of sounds, so many different wow. things, and each song would have like four to five different sounds or patches that they were changing to. Now, yeah. granted, they were storing these in the internal memory so that they didn't have to do it on the fly, yeah. but still that didn't help me because you know there was no way for me to go back and be like, okay, it was this one here, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I had to kind of learn you know, what the difference is between a square wave and a saw wave. How they sound, you mean? How they sound. So starting yeah. there, I had to learn how to manipulate the filter. Um, I had to really, you know, understand how the envelope worked and how how adding how much of the filter into the sound, you know, how much of the envelope you wanted to have it come through to. So all of the parameters of synthesis, if you if you get if you can get your hands on something that emulates an old school analog synth with like really basic parameters, like um, you know, two to three oscillators, basic choices between waveforms, you know, a classic low-pass filter, right? Um, and with knobs that you can manipulate, and then starting to like read about how to manipulate sounds and how to generate particular synth sounds, you can get a really good idea of um, what's going on. So now sound design is a lot easier for me because I I can hear it and be like, okay, this pad has this much of the filter opened up. This is how much the filter is passing through the envelope. Here's the envelope, right? Settings. This is how long the attack is. The decay on the um, on the amplifier. Right. This will too, and so you can hear all those things and say, okay, that's how I get that soft sort of fluttering pad. It's like, oh, this is a really like aggressive sound. You know, this is two sawtooths with the filter all the way open, allowing all the sound to pass through. You know. So you did, start to figure things out from there, basically. Gotcha. Did you get your... You say you need to get your hands on something like that. Did you get your hands on something like that? <laughs> or did you just um, use a patch in your... Um, in, in well, I, well, I did. It was really working with that, that plug-in that works inside of MainStage. Because any okay. third-party plug-in will work inside of MainStage. Okay. There was an emulation of you know the Prophet 5. Okay. So that's, that's really recent for me. And that's, okay. that's you, really you know changed. Okay. Um, yeah, Arturia makes it. It's called the Prophet 5 Collection. Okay. Um, if anyone's curious, and it's basically just designed to emulate that that old Prophet 5 synthesizer. Gotcha. But it also comes packaged together with um, the Prophet VS, which is vector synthesis. Okay. So those are wavetables, right? So like sampled waves of different things. Right. Yeah. And that's a whole other world <laughs> I'll put a link to that you know yeah. in the um, and I usually have a, like a link section for everybody uh, where you can go look the stuff up and you know find it if you want to use yeah, it yeah absolutely um, I, my first keyboard was the M1 the Korg M1 oh okay so you know that was a really big deal at the time that you could um, go inside and tweak those kinds of things yeah absolutely um, and then I had a Korg O&W which took it even farther yeah you know? um but I know that was kind of like back in the days of the DX7, too. I never had one of those. But, um. So I had to do um, Danger Zone, and I tracked down the samples, you know, from the DX7. Got yeah. that old, you know, uh, that base one patch, and that's that's the beginning of Danger Zone. Bow, 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 bow. You know, that famous patch. And then that's also the same patch that they use for Seinfeld. 
the uh, introductory intro music to Seinfeld. That's right. Yeah. All done on the DX7. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> I mean, it was an incredible keyboard at the time. You know. I, I can imagine, yeah. Just, um, everybody had one. <laughs> it was the thing to do, but... Um, I will. I will include. That's that stuff is just amazing. I mean, so but you did the patches not only for yourself but for the other keyboard player for that. Whole I show. did too. Yeah. Wow, that was kind of you. Yeah. Well, um, I was in a situation where the keyboard player hired was pulling double duty. Um, she was also going to do the role of one of the um, background vocalists for the show. Gotcha. And so, so she didn't really have as much sound design experience. So yeah. I just kind of took it upon myself to make sure. Well, if each get done right. Yeah, each time that you do something like that, you do you grow, but you just grow so much. If you if you're starting at base level, yeah. and you have to you know so have so much to learn, then uh, yeah, that's when you learn the most. Absolutely, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. Trial by fire is always always the way to go, or sink or swim. Right? Is it's it's almost like you want to kind of get a task or a gig that just kind of feels slightly out of your reach. Mm -hmm. And then in prepping for it and getting ready for it, you sort of grow. And I can very much say that's been, you know, a path through my career. I remember when I got into the cover band game, um, I was required, it was a small cover band. It was just myself on keys, a bass player that sung and a drummer that sung. And they wanted to keep it as a three-piece because they could make more money that way. And so I had to learn how to sound and play guitar parts. I became responsible for playing all the horns and the strings and things like that. And um, I remember getting that gig and getting a huge set of tunes, you know, and they were all tunes I'd never played before, but they were all super standard, you know, things like, your brick house and yeah. kind of that funky music, white boy, and yeah. you know, ain't no sunshine. But at the time, it was hard for me. And this is, I want to say, this is seven or six years ago. At this point now, uh, thirty-one, so it was like 24, 25, 26 maybe. Okay, trying to place it. But I remember getting that, and that was challenging. And then I grew to that challenge. But I learned how to, you know, play multiple parts at the same time as a keyboard player. Yeah. Um, and you know how to how to do the beginning of sound design, and um, you know from there I joined a wedding band where they didn't want to run tracks, and so the sound design element was even um, you know heavier and harder. Where I had to learn how to like make things like Uptown Funk sound like Uptown Funk, but do all the parts because there were no horn players. Um, so I would be doing the horns and the synth and the crazy sample at the beginning and the rises and, and all of those things. Okay. So I had to learn how to do those. So um, do you assign uh, zones to one keyboard, basically? Generally speaking, so the, the most thorough rig that I bring is I bring um, my Nord Electro 5D, which basically I run mostly the internal sounds I use. The organ engine that's on that and the piano sounds that are on that and most of the time the road sounds unless I need something different. Nord just makes such high quality keyboards and just really really great piano roads and organ sounds that yeah. you can't beat it even though some of the stuff inside of main stage or logic sounds pretty good and a lot of third-party stuff like Keyscape sounds amazing too. 
Um, but the beauty of the Nord 2 is, you know, they make the interface really easy to use. So I just, for basic stuff, piano, Rhodes, organ, that all gets covered by my Nord. And I have an ultimate support stand, so I rack that as my bottom board. And then on top, um, if the gig is going to require me to do more, and I do do this setup with bands like Party of the Year, stuff like that, where I have a lot of sounds to get through, but then just also a lot of piano playing and organ playing to do. Gotcha. Um, on top, I'll put the MIDI controller, which talks the main stage, and then that becomes my catch-all from everything from strings to horns to bells, whistles, samples, synth sounds, pads, and really anything. I've played vibraphone up there. I played the penny whistle solo to You, you, be, um, you Can Call Me Al on there. I play... Cool play mandolin parts up there. I play a ton of banjo, actually, up there as well, too. Wow, okay. Um, in the country world. Little panjo, as they say. Right? <laughs> right? Um, I've done fiddle up there for songs that needed it, harmonica. Okay. So, yeah, really a catch-all for all other sounds. So many octaves is that? Um, I believe it's C1 through C6, the uh, okay. MIDI controller, and then the... Um, uh, the Nord is the um, waterfall keys. It's 73, okay. so not right. quite full, but okay. Yeah. So the ultimate stand is just a, a really heavy-duty stand that lets you have two keyboards right in front of you, basically, yeah. and it's it's, those arms that stretch stretch out. Yeah, I used to have an ultimate. They all kind of break down into the center column, yeah. and then you can pick it up with a handle. So it's great yeah. if you're gigging. It's not awkward. It doesn't take up a lot of space in your vehicle. Yeah, you just need to be able to lay it flat. And then um, I have a laptop stand adapter that goes on top of it, so my laptop is looking me right in the face, so okay. I can you know, so I can see main stage and see all my parameters and change things if I need to. Gotcha. And then also I use that to look at my charts. So I have to ask, do you experience crashes? So I've been really, really fortunate. Um, I spent right. a lot of time with the program and I have I have knocked on wood not really ever had a huge major issue. Excellent. In the beginning Really glad to hear that. In the beginning I had some issues, you know. And in a perfect world, you could run an A-B setup, but I don't have the money for that, and I don't think most people who are at my level right now would, where, yeah. where that's even possible. Yeah. You know, when they run tracks, like in a live setting, they usually have two computers running both tracks. They have an A-B, and if something goes wrong, they switch over to the other one. Okay. You know, but obviously that's... The national level, yeah, you know, playing huge stadiums like, like Katy Perry, probably, and absolutely the guy who plays for her, yeah. And they also hire, they also hire people whose whole job it is to do the tracks and mix the tracks. Like, so there's a front of house guy, and then there's like a front of house guy for the tracks, which okay. is which is crazy, but <laughs> right. But you you're doing this like all by yourself. You have no support. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's an interesting. I mean, that's that's the best way to learn. <laughs> It's it's really harrowing and kind of it makes it really hard, but um, it's a great way to learn. It's a it's an interesting game to be played between versatility and potential of having an issue. Um, if you buy a workstation, the workstation pro probably nothing is ever going to go wrong with that. I mean, those things are pretty solid, but with a workstation, you're doing all your stuff on this tiny little screen. 
you're limited by whatever parameters they put in. Um, I don't personally know if you can load third-party stuff, but I would imagine probably Yamaha. I think you can. Yeah. I, well, you know, I don't. I'm not sure actually. I know, I know, like with the Nord stage, you can you can load samplers. You can use a sampler editor and things like that to do stuff. But yeah. even with the Nord stage, you're kind of burdened by their split points. Yeah. Um, I, I used the stage three on a gig that was backlined recently, and I ended up just you know. Playing piano organ on it, but then using its MIDI out to connect to main stage, and then running sounds off of main stage when I needed to. Right. Know? So that's your comfort zone and what right, you're most familiar right. with, and yeah, makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Um, wow. Okay. Well, you know, I'm just sort of thinking that we ought to just go back just a little bit and just sure. explain how you got to where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just even you know briefly, if you want. Yeah. But like, um, did you start as a piano student? Yeah, so, all right, when I was eight, I started taking piano lessons. Um, we were really lucky. My family inherited a uh, Steinway full concert grand, or, or not full concert, but the 7'7 seven seven version of it, and it was an antique. It's from the 1800s. Wow. Um, yeah, and that just showed up in my house one day. And, uh, <laughs> you know, pretty, pretty wild. And so I started tinkering. Most people, around. a dog shows up. Yeah, or, I don't yeah, know. no. Um, we <laughs> maybe were, a new car, maybe. We were really, really lucky. It was my great aunts. And um, I started. Not that there's anything wrong with dogs. I love dogs, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. I love dogs, too. But anyway, yeah. a Steinway shows up at your house. Okay. Yeah. So, so I started kind of tinkering around. Jeez. And you know how moms are. They declare it's like oh he's gonna have piano lessons so I started taking piano lessons and I took to it um, I had a bit of falling out with it um, at various points I would say in my early teens I wasn't the biggest fan but stuck with it and then in my first year of college I actually gave up playing it altogether um, what ended up happening was I thought I wanted to be a guitar player because that was cool. Yeah. And that was the instrument that I was hearing in most of the music that I liked. Sure. Um, which was mostly progressive rock and metal and things like that. Okay. But so piano lessons are very non-cool in some ways. Um, um, but you know, it's it's like the ultimate cool, but you have to be patient to get there. Piano is an interesting instrument in that I think that the rewards for learning it are set up way down the curve. Yeah. That's the thing about picking up a guitar is like in your first lesson you can probably learn three chords and then now that means you can reasonably play about 75% of rock songs. You know. Right. If you learn C, G, and D on, on the guitar... Yeah. You yep. just you and can have play, a capo. And have a capo. You can learn a lot. You can play a lot of songs on guitar. <laughs> so the rewards for guitar are kind of like a, uh, you know, like a U-shape where they're really high at the beginning, maybe not so much in the middle, and then really high again at the end. Whereas piano, I would say the rewards might be more of kind of like a a steady climb towards the end where mm -hmm. you feel kind of good about it in the middle and then, mm -hmm. but it's still kind of hard. And then towards the, the really far end of it is where you kind of start to gain some mastery over the instrument. You can really do what you want with it. And then at that point, you're kind of off to the races. But that means that's a long haul. Yeah. It's very delayed gratification. And I, I mean, we can talk about that with, with students about how to manage that. but. 
I always found it, you know, personally difficult to give the kids the long-term perspective because mm -hmm. they would see where they wanted to go but realize they weren't getting there fast enough yeah. or as fast as they thought they should be getting there. And then they would kind of start to, you know, putter out and not be as invested in it. And so it's tough. It's tough to make piano manageable for the long term. I yes. think that the break that I took was really important. Um, I had kind of been in this very strict classical tract for a really long time. Okay. And I method books, scales. Not, not necessarily method books, um, and not even really. I played through Hannon, you know, at certain points in my piano career. And so some technical. So guidance. yeah, and, and various teachers made their attempts to get me to play scales, but we're always very focused on pieces, right? Okay. I really didn't get to that level of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like foundational technique until my college years. Okay. So what happened to me was I thought that I was going to be a guitarist. as <laughs> a foolish notion. <laughs> and uh, I took some jazz guitar lessons, and what I figured out was I'm not really a huge fan of the guitar as an instrument. For me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I have to think about it as like, you know, five different pianos, <laughs> you know, all kind of stacked, stacked on one, on top of one another. And each one is like moved over a little bit. And I'm just like, oh, this is, like this him. is frustrating. It sounds like the Harry Potter staircases. You right. Know? They're always moving and shifting. And On piano, yeah. we know exactly where a note is. Yep. If we read it in a place on the staff, we know it belongs here. And it won't move. And it won't move. And it's in one spot. And it's in one spot. Gotcha. On the guitar, who knows? Mm-hmm. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, not a huge um, fan of guitar, but kind of was like this jazz thing kind of seems cool. And I wanted to do something with music. And the jazz piano teacher there, his name was David Lama. He was sort of spoken about with this sort of, you know, reverence and respect. And you could just tell that he was like the head honcho there. And he was like, he was the big deal, if you will. And so in I, your hometown? No, no, no. This was at college. Oh, okay. At, at, Ho at Hofstra University. I went to school at Hofstra okay. on Long Island. And I actually went there um, to do film school and ended up changing to music, okay. if you will, uh, in my junior, like sophomore, junior year, basically. Okay. So I begged this guy. Uh, he was on sabbatical the first year, too. So I was taking those guitar lessons my first year. I wasn't able to take piano. So my sophomore year, I basically begged this guy to teach me. And he did. He took me on as a student. Um, and through there, I kind of learned to love jazz. But what he made me do is he made me really go back and learn all my scales and my chords and you know be able to really have a thorough understanding of what makes music work essentially you know mm -hmm. and this is on piano harmony. yeah on piano okay you know? great okay and so i you know i got those skills if you will at that point and that gotcha. really that really served me well you yeah know? yeah yeah the first lesson was like go back and have all 12 major scales like completely down pat and then the next one was like okay melodic minor and harmonic minor i'll see you next week yeah you know and then the next one was like okay this is an exercise to play every two chord, five chord, and one chord two in existence. Five, one. Yep. It's like, go home and do this. 
So like the first two months, I didn't even touch a tune. Yeah, a two five one. I know I played this at another somebody's, but little. Hey. It's, it's just a <laughs> chord progression. Yep. That's like what you said. If you learn the three chords, it's in every. It's in so many jazz songs. The two yeah. ones are in. Yep. You can play seventy five percent of. Right, jazz uh, is mostly made up of two five ones. So. Okay, so he gave you that progression. Yep. So you know, basically, there was this exercise where you would play a two five one in every key, moving by half steps. Okay. So you play two five one of you know a key, and then chromatically shift down to the next half step and play a two five one of the next key. Okay. He had a lot of exercises like that to kind of take the theoretical and harmonic elements of jazz and turn them into exercises that were digestible so that you could learn the building blocks so that when it came time to play tune that had, you know, like five different two five ones in it, you weren't sitting there scratching your head about how to voice the thing. Right. And he picked tunes in such a way that they they worked in like a predictable pattern. So like I just learned the two five one exercise and then the first tune we ever played together was Afternoon Paris. Okay. Which starts with a two five one in C and a two five one in B flat. Okay. And a two five one in A flat. Okay. And then back to C. And so after having done that exercise, it's like, oh, this stuff is right here underneath my fingers. Yeah. So that took care of the left hand. Yes. And then all of the theoretical scale work and everything he gave me started to give me the tools to improvise over that. Gotcha. So, so through studying jazz, I kind of fell back in love with music and back in love with piano. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of school, I was writing my own original jazz compositions. I called it prog jazz because basically it was kind of marrying all of these uh, elements of you know hard rock and metal and stuff like that that I really liked with with jazz. So and I really I really enjoyed uh, modality and modal mixture. So a lot of the music wasn't really centered on things like two five ones. I was not a bop guy by any stretch of the imagination. Gotcha. And that was never really my strength as a jazz player. You know, I just some people really have a knack for that language. Right. And they play it well. So I I wasn't gonna be the dude who was playing all the things you are for the eighth millionth time and you know, I wasn't gonna be the Brad Meldow of, of uh all the things you are, if you will. Right. So I Basically, I was playing with that trio. I was writing all the music for it. And um, I had moved home to Connecticut, but the trio was still based in Brooklyn. So I was heading back to Brooklyn, um, you know, during these weekends and things to do that stuff. And I ended up putting out a record that I was pretty proud of, which I don't think anyone can find anymore. It is on YouTube, but we decided to call ourselves Thick, T-H-I-C-K. Um, and this was in the era of like Robin Thicke blowing up and then also typing thick into a search engine does not <laughs> come up with good results. So if you're curious, I can give you guys a link that will take you directly Definitely. to the yeah. music on YouTube so that you don't have to I... get weird stuff trying to search for it. So. That'd be great. Yeah. I think a lot of people will be interested in hearing that. Yeah. But I... What ended up happening with that is I kind of got tired of being the primary songwriter, the leader, the gig booker, the promoter, the website manager, the social media manager. Um, Make a good point. There's a whole lot of non-music making that's 
involved with the, the, we live in a beautiful world where basically anybody can go and cut a record now, which you weren't able to in the past. That wasn't, you needed a label, you know. Right. Now anybody can make anything they want from their home on a laptop, you know, if they if they want to do it that way. We did that record in a studio. We did it at Carriage House Studios, um, which is where uh, Beyonce did the Halo record and... Uh, Sonny Rollins actually goes there to record as well too a lot and nice. Deftones did an album Saturday Night Wrist and I think the Pixies did one too I think it's Doolittle that was done there but I don't quote me on any of that though were you uh, were you blown away just to be there or how did that yeah happen? it was it was how did that work out how, how did you manage that so I knew that I wanted to do a record and I I wanted to do it in like a good studio and um, I ran a Kickstarter, and uh, okay, yeah, and I Sweet. I bought this guide about how to do Kickstarters for musicians, and I took you know all these donations from people, and we created all these different like award tiers and things like that, and a lot of people you know from our network, mutual network of the band, all kind of helped out and everything. Nice. Um, and so we went, we did the record, and we pressed physical copies. And I'm, those are still in a, a box somewhere, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, the thing the thing about music is, um, especially original music, is your friends and your family cannot be your customer base. Yeah. You really have to get people outside of it to dig it, you know. So basically, I just, I just got tired of the slog and the um, being in that lead role. And again, the genre that I've chosen you know, to write original music in is, I don't want to say not a commercially viable genre because there's plenty of examples of people who do well. Um, you know, especially in recent years, stuff like Snarky Puppy has really blown up. And uh, if people in Nashville are familiar with Dynamo, I mean, those guys do well for themselves too. You know, they're out playing and gigging and touring. But for me, I just, it, it was costing me a lot. So I got an offer um, from a musician that I played with in Connecticut to join a cover band and make some money. And so I started to play on the weekends with the cover band, and then I started playing less with my trio, and my trio just kind of started to, to fade away a little bit and, you know, sort of moved on from that. And as I got busier and busier with the cover work and getting paid, um, you know, I liked the money. And I was like, huh, it's kind of nice to go and get paid to play music yeah. uh, for a living. And at the time, I had been teaching through, throughout all of this. You know, after, after college, when I moved home, um, I had a crappy job in sales for a little while. I hated it. <laughs> right. And then I, I worked in, like, a piano shop for six months. And that's where I met my first student. He came in and was looking at the pianos and heard me play. And he said, would you be interested in teaching me? I said, yeah, sure. You know, he's like, what do you charge? I'm like, well, I'll charge you 50 bucks an hour. And, you know, just like that, at uh, 23, I was I was working for $50 an hour. Now, granted, I only had one student at the time, but I, <laughs> I saw the potential of being able to charge a high hourly rate. Yeah. And I didn't want to do the office thing. It wasn't for me. Yeah. I didn't want to work the 40-hour work week and everything. Right. So I got into teaching. So this whole time I've been teaching, but... Um, for me personally, I started to burn out a little bit on teaching, and so I, when I was young too, I wanted to kind of switch into spending more of my time playing. 
Right. And Did you know any, um, like, was anybody in your family a teacher? What made you think about, so did you, who were your role models for? Like, I guess you were probably thinking about your jazz teacher, but it sounds like he was your favorite teacher. Um, I, w- I would say I have three, I've had a lot of teachers throughout the years. I got swapped around. I don't want to say quite a bit, but I had like a few interim teachers and there's really, there's really three teachers that made a big impression on me. Um, the first one was Mr. Dagno, who's probably responsible for, you know, all of, uh, you know, all of what I am today. I mean, he got me started and it was his cruel but brutal, but also kind tutelage that he, he had this thing where he would make me just play it until it was right. And he would make me go all the way back to the beginning. And so we would just get, oh I would get so much. But I'm thankful for it now. I really am. Wow. Yeah. I, I'm thankful because I would just get so much repetition in the pieces. And this was classical music? This was mostly classical music. In the beginning, there was some of this, some of that. But, you know, I was playing like um, like abridged versions of like fantasy impromptu. Okay. I was like 11 or 12. Gotcha. You know, yeah. obviously not the real thing, but... Right. Um, you know, what he, could, what he could give me, you know, that was... Um, designed for someone like me, and then um, so he was insisting on fundamentals. Yeah, correct he, notes, correct rhythms, um, dynamics, etc. Absolutely, his his policy was it's either right or it's wrong. Okay, if it's wrong, you're going to go back and play it until it's right. Okay, you know? all right. So, wow. and granted, you know, I absolutely butted heads with that as a young kid. Yeah, but I'm so thankful that he did that for me because it really it really made me you know good and good quickly. Um, then I went and studied with Greg Babel, you know, during my, my high school years. And I would actually later study with Greg Babel again after college. Um, I wanted to play some high level classical music and I I was getting classical students in my teaching career and I wanted to make sure that I was fresh and I wasn't telling them wrong things like about, you know, trills and turns and, you know, because there's in classical music, there's so much stuff that's period based how you would approach things right. you know I'm assuming you're thinking about Bach and Chopin when you say absolutely turns. yeah, yeah. Turns I'm and thinking trails. about Bach and Chopin yeah yeah absolutely so what's a name a couple of pieces that really like anything come to mind that you really enjoyed playing like you still would play it today if, if you yeah so um I love Chopin Chopin is my favorite classical composer so these are all going to be Chopin songs. So Polonaise in A flat is incredible. It's yeah. it's a monster of a piece, and it's so much fun to play. And then I love um, the Nocturnes, especially the Nocturne in D flat. I think it's really beautiful, and I okay. played that as well. Um, and then I also really uh, enjoy the Waltz in D flat as well too. Um, and then I find myself a lot of times like. If I have the time and I'm sitting down, I really enjoy playing through um, that second movement of Sonata Pathétique. Yeah. You know, the famous one, the slow one in A-flat. I mean, and just, that's Beethoven. It's just beautiful. Yeah. Karen yeah. talked a lot about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful composition. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to make the switch to jazz. Oh, and so you were going to say one more teacher, I think? Yeah, and then finally is David LaLama, okay. you know, the teacher that taught me jazz. You know? Okay. These, these are the three music teachers who've had the most influence on me. Gotcha. And they all, they all kind of share similar qualities in that they were, um, you know, 
almost very fatherly in a sense. Um, all male teachers. Yeah, they're all male, all male teachers. And then also, you know, very demanding, extremely gifted players in and of themselves. I mean, just incredible, you know, adeptness at, at what they do. Yeah. So, I mean... And you find yourself teaching. And then I find myself teaching, right? <laughs> and you've got to... Kind of sort of passing down, how, you know, their yeah. tutelage. Yeah, well. and that is a one one really quick way to find out what you know and what you don't. And Absolutely. How many were you trying to juggle at once? Uh, it got up to the point where I had an excess of 30. Okay. And that was too yeah. much. And I, I worked out and I... <laughs> I kind of let it, you know, fall down a little bit. It's hard will, work, you know? yeah, and and uh, to stay separate. And if you want to be a player, it's very draining. It can be very tiring. There's, there's, um, you know, there's a balance to be had. But if you mostly want to play, it can be difficult to be spending a lot of hours with students where you could be practicing or learning material or mm -hmm. doing what you need to do. Absolutely. So. It's um, always juggling that. There's also, I think, something to be said for your ethics in teaching, which is at the beginning, I was ecstatic about teaching. I loved it. And I think people go through phases in their life where they're doing something, and it can be really with anything, but at least in music where... You play with a band for a certain amount of time, or you play a certain genre of music, and you start to either become disinterested in it or sort of outgrow it. Young students, young music students, they absolutely deserve a teacher who's going to give them 100% of their focus and attention. And for many years, that was definitely me. But then I noticed myself just slowly starting to slip a little bit. And I said, I'm going to exit this and take a break. I may go back to teaching someday. I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to take a break for my health and long longevity, essentially, in this profession. But then also to make sure I'm doing right by the kids. Because if you're a teacher who's like 75% there and yeah. your students are coming in and... You're missing things. You don't care. You've kind of lost some of your hotspot, if you will. Yeah. Like your willingness to do the tough work and say to the kid, you know, that's not quite right. We need to do it again. Or, yeah. you know, the once you start slipping a little bit, that's really not fair to the kids. That's not what they deserve. That's not what you're being paid for, you know. Yeah. You're really, you're not there to be a babysitter. You know, you're there to teach them music. And so... If you start slipping, I think you have to do the right thing, kind of pull back from it. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of what I did. And, you know, I think it's just a natural, Not it has nothing to do with not wanting to teach and not loving it. It has everything to do with doing something every day for seven to eight years. Because I spent about eight years teaching. And, you know, after eight years of doing the same thing day in and day out, yeah. you sort of want something new, a different challenge, a different direction. Yeah. And at the time, I started picking up more and more playing solo piano gigs, cover band gigs, wedding band gigs. Okay. So it's everything. Like, so I was busy. I was busy with that. And um, I did all of that. And I did that in Connecticut right up until 29. And what I realized is that if I didn't move, I'd be playing the same bars, yeah. the same uh, wedding venues, the, you know, the same restaurants, 
you know, for the rest of my life in Connecticut. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. I wanted to kind of see, you know, what I was made of and uh, see if I could play on some bigger stages. Yeah. And uh, play with the best of the best. And that prompted my move to Nashville. Gotcha. So, so that was an extremely long-winded way <laughs> of explaining how I ended up here, I guess. No. Uh, it's, you know, it's all really interesting to me. Um, you know, the... the you, you look back and you think, okay, if I hadn't had that teacher, where would I be right now? I mean, right. to, when you make a decision to change your major when you're in college and you've, you've gone for one thing and you're going to switch over, right. it's a big deal. And when, and when you're asking a jazz teacher to please take you on and they know that you don't have fundamentals and they decide that they're going to do it, yeah. these are like the turning points where um, your destiny is either made or switched or flipped or, you know, Absolutely. they're big deals. Yeah. They're big deals in the life of a musician, at least, because... Uh, to me, you know, we're taking chance after chance after chance after chance, basically. Oh, wow. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's you know, fueled by this, you just cannot stop. You love it. Yeah. There's, yeah. This, or there's this feeling of, I have to do this. I have to do there's this. There's a lot of... Seems like to me. There's a lot of coming full circle, if you will, where you start in places and you sort of travel around and you, you come back to it. So, like, for me, I came back to classical music part was motivated by wanting to be able to teach students the right stuff but then also part of it was I just want to play some of these reach pieces mm-hmm. I just want to see if I'm good enough to do them yeah know? so for my just for my own growth and my own you know technique if you will so I came it was funny I started there and I went away from it and I came back gotcha and then jazz was such a huge piece of the puzzle for so long I was, you know, in school doing it, and then obviously outside, I was doing my own thing as well, too. I haven't played a jazz gig in forever, except for last Saturday night, um, I got asked to go do a jazz gig, you know, off the cuff, and just handed a bunch of lead sheets and said, here, play the tunes, you know. That can be scary. It was a lot of fun, though. Good. It was a lot of fun, and a lot of that stuff is, you know, still there. It's You're really, I, I think when you... When you spend a lot of time with the genre of music, you sort of don't lose the major conventions of it, if you will. Yeah, you know? that makes sense. So it, it's all kind of still there, and some of the language is still there, and gotcha. the recording and everything, and knowing what to do. Yeah. But then just a lot of time spent in Nashville, sort of learning how to listen and know what to do, mm-hmm. part-wise as an instrument, was, was helpful there. So it's like come back around now to playing some jazz and mm-hmm. I think you know in the future that I may start writing again and doing my own thing again yeah again it's it's about I think long longevity in the music world is about having things that you're interested in and realizing when it's time to move to something else yes you know before I, you burn out on it mm-hmm. so. yeah and everything that I've done I don't know about you but it sounds like you're saying the same thing when I when I do something new, it feeds everything else. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, and and I have so much respect for so many different types of music and for different musicians. And I oh, mean, yeah. it just runs the gamut for me. So, I, the thing I'm most excited about right now is kind of a Americana meets soul music meets sort of southern rock music and the artist I play for. I would have never thought that those words would come out of my <laughs> mouth at all at any point in my career, but uh, that's where I'm at right now, and that's that's kind of what I've been digging on. I'm trying to imagine what fun. that would sound like. Um, the gentleman goes by the name of King Corroy. 
Oh, okay. And um, yeah. so the listeners can, you know, he's on Spotify, so you can go ahead and kind of check out that music. I've been okay. playing keys for him. It's very like Van Morrison meets the Allman Brothers, if All you will. All right. Yeah. I think I might know a couple of people who sing backups for him. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our mutual friend, Yvonne, yes. does BGVs for him. Okay. And a lot of the, the crew, if you will. Neil Johnson's on bass. And... Um, uh, I'm trying to remember all of the horn players' names. I'm not going to remember their last name. Kyle Morgan plays saxophone, and I know we both know the trumpeter. I'm trying to, I'm blanking on his name right now. Oh, I'll have to check. Um, I'm definitely going to come hear him. Yeah. I'm very intrigued. Yeah, his stuff's, his stuff's great. How <laughs> cool is that? Definitely. Um, so, who are some of your favorite keyboard players? Who are your um, biggest inspirers? Um, so... I would say for the first part of my life, I really wasn't too into keyboard players. It was mostly guitar players, but I, w- I can run down what, who I think were like the major influences. So Jordan Rudess from Dream Theater was a big deal in my teens because I was playing a lot of prog rock and I, I played some prog rock with some friends at the time. Um, and then in college, Hiromi Uehara was a big deal. Um, she she's this little Japanese sort of jazz pianist, and she has trios and quartets, and she gets asked to play with all kinds of people. She is unbelievably good, uh, ridiculously ridiculously good. And then these days, um, Corey Henry is a really big deal, obviously. Um, so he kind of came to fame playing through Snarky Puppy, and now he does his own thing with the Funk Apostles, and he's just. He's just unbelievable. He's an unbelievable organ player, and I've been very interested in playing organ, you know, ever since I got to Nashville. So yeah. to hear him play is is incredible. And then this guy named Jesus Molina um, has been really big for me lately. He may be like the best keyboard player in the world. <laughs> yeah, and he not only that, but he's a multi instrumentalist, so he can play all these other instruments as well too. But uh, he, uh, you can see these videos of him online playing at NAM and just doing these mind-blowing improv- improvisations just on the spot at NAM, and people are just going, <laughs> going insane. So, I would say those are those are the big ones, you know, who've kind of been an influence for me. But I'll be honest with you, I would say most of the musicians that have influenced me have not been keyboard players. Okay. Um, Wayne Shorter was really important to me in the jazz world. Okay. And a lot of, so much of the music that I listened to in my earlier years was guitar driven that uh, most of the musicians and things that really had an influence on me were, you know, guitarists and mm-hmm. things like that. So Me too, honestly. Yeah. Um, of course, Billy Joel and Elton John and some of those guys really I listened to a lot. Carol King. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I emulate a lot of guitar licks, I think, in especially in organ rides. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very similar. It's kind of weird. But I mean, I, I think here's the thing where guitar, at least historically, is sort of this instrument that lends itself um, to creating these legendary players that have really particular sounds, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, so guitarists naturally have these players that they're into. But with keyboard players, most of the time, the way the keyboards get treated is mostly as kind of like a support instrument. Sometimes there are instances where it's the star, but that's, in my opinion, that's not really par for the course. 
Right. Most of the time, it's playing some type of support role. Right. And even in instances where it's like a pianist, vocalist, like Billy Joel or Elton John, I mean, they rarely, if ever, are doing like these crazy solos on everything. Right. Some songs do, but most of the time, they're they're like the meat and potatoes, and it's really their voice that is the star. So it's hard to like historically find keyboard players, you know, that are really the star of the show. I mean, I have difficulty thinking of them. The guy from Deep Purple, I mean, I don't even know his name. It's an embarrassment. <laughs> but that would be that would be one that comes to mind. John Lord. Is it is it John Lord? Yeah. Yeah. So. So. Yeah, but you know, that music is um it's very um um it's a, it's a certain, you know, audience. Right. That listens to that. It's right. not mainstream, I would say. Um, yeah. There's a there's a great station out of Clarksville that plays lots and lots of Deep Purple on oh, Mondays yeah. and Fridays. That's cool. And I check it out, you know, frequently because I mean, not, there's nowhere else that I ever hear yeah. that. But it's yeah. just it's great stuff. Absolutely. But it's um it's just not. I don't. I wouldn't say it's mainstream. Although I think they are touring. Really. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Um. So, anyway, but yeah, I do. I do admire him a lot. I love. I love all the organists because they, you know, they have the power to compete with the guitar players. Right. The or, organ is like distortion <laughs> for piano. That's how I think of it. Yeah. You know? It's the rock out um, opportunity. But even then, I, I think you know one of the best organ players comes from the jazz world. Um, you know, Joey DeFrancesco. Right. Is just mind blowing to watch. He's a he's a monster. Of course, he plays bass with his feet and his left hand. So right. he's he's real old school. He's the best of the best. And I love the blues guys too. The blues organists, you know, oh, they're yeah. very Absolutely. tasteful and uh, and you know the, the guys that do organ trio stuff are amazing oh, yeah. to me. Oh man, how could I forget about this? Soul Live, Soul Live is huge for me. So Neil Evans uh, has really, especially in recent years. It's been like big influence on me, you know. Um, that dude. So in, instead of playing his left hand bass on the organ, he actually has a bass keyboard that sounds like a bass guitar that he plays on. Okay. So he he plays, you know, a clavinet and uh, <laughs> the the Hammond organ and the bass keys. And he does all that stuff for the soul live, you know, organ trio, if you will. And he's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you just t- before we started, I didn't I, I didn't hit the record button, you know, in time to catch this. But you just recently acquired a Hammond organ. I did, yeah. yeah. So I bought a Hammond CV. So the CV is older than you know your A one hundred or your B three or your C three. So it doesn't have some of the features that those would. So mainly the big difference is, is that there's no percussion unit inside of the organ, um, and that also there are ratchet draw bars, so they're not smooth pull. You have to kind of dial it into the, the right spot where the draw bar will actually generate no sound. And then obviously wow. um, the okay. keys are not smooth. They're not those waterfall keys. They kind of have more of a hardened plastic feel. But it's still a beautiful, wonderful hand organ. And it has, you know, the distinct advantage of being not as expensive as if I had gone to buy you know, a B3 or a C3 or an A100. Sure. Um, but ever since I bought that, I've been using it to do remote tracking work, so studio work at home, and it's been huge for me. Um, and it's also just helpful to have the organ 
to practice the mechanics of playing Oregon. I mean, you know, so facility right. between the two manuals and working out draw bar sounds and knowing what's appropriate when and yeah. things like that. Like so. what you were talking about earlier, to get your hands on it and, and figure Absolutely. it out. Spend some time with it. Yeah, some, sometimes you really do need to be working with the type of instrument, you know, that they're different. A synth is not an organ, an organ is not a piano. Um, yeah. And so you can't play an organ the way you would play piano. You can't play a synth the way you would play piano, you know. And you can't play a synth the way you would play organ. So. Right. What do you prefer, recording or playing live? You know, I have really preferred doing the recording stuff as of late. And, you know, I think that may be the next direction for me to head where I really enjoy the creative freedom that you get with it. Especially when you're at home, uh, you can take your time with it. You can do as many passes as you need to. You have opportunity to explore ideas. Yeah. And you can you can really do whatever you want. And so the track's there, and it's your responsibility to fill in the keys. Now, I mean, sometimes the producer gives you a direction to go into, and you need to honor that, obviously, if you want to get paid and do a good job and get repeated work. But um, you really have you know a ton of freedom about the choices that you make creatively yeah. to generate a part. And so to me, that's that's really been enjoyable especially since, as we talked about earlier, a lot of what I have to do is play someone else's part on a record, note for note. Right, so. right. So are you using, like, Logic or Pro Tools? Yeah, or so, I mean, my rig is just, you know, the Scarlett 2i, 2o audio interface, which I use to take the microphones that are miking the Leslie. I send that into Logic. So you got a Leslie too? Yes, yes. I have a Leslie as well too. Yeah. Okay. The having the, the one without the other is basically <laughs> pointless. Yeah. Yeah. You you need both. It the yeah. organ is not the organ without the Leslie, basically. Right. Um so yeah, the, the Leslie gets mic'd up and I'll actually be upgrading to an audio interface that has more inputs because I want to put more mics on the Leslie. I want to be able to mic the top. Uh, rotor, you know, yeah. the treble essentially in stereo, right. you know, with condenser mics. Yeah. Um, so I can get that, you know, nice whirling effect that occurs. Right. So that's basically it. You know, I have a couple microphones, the SM57s. I have a Shure Beta 152A for the bottom, you know, cables to take them into the audio interface, and I record into Logic. And then I just bounce the tracks and I upload them to wherever they need to go and that's it. Sweet. Yeah. And you can do that all over the country, I suppose. Yeah, any, anywhere you need to be. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful, wonderful world. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot different than, Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, a few years ago. It's, everything has really changed. But it's, um, so that would make it, I mean, you could do your own project, it seems like. You could. Well, that too, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, also we have the ability to do things with virtual instruments, um, Obviously, the Nord's samples as well, too. You know, the, the Nord Electro has all of the piano and Rhodes samples, so I'll use those if I need to cut some piano or Rhodes or things like that. Right. Um, and then, obviously, I have a ton of virtual instruments so if I need to do anything like that. But most of the remote tracking work I've been doing is the organ, and I think that the reason for that is because people want authentic Hammond organ on their tracks. To get that, most of the time, they either have to go into a studio and pay a keyboard player to be there tracking on the organ. Yeah. Or if they can farm it out to someone who does it from home, 
that's usually cheaper for them. Yeah. So. And who would not want Hammond organ on your recording? <laughs> I just have to say, I'm very biased, but, you know, I mean... There's, there's just like a warmth <laughs> that's missing with all of the digital stuff. Yeah. That's really what it is. It's just... It's tubes. <laughs> it's yeah. the same thing with guitarists, you know? Yeah. The, the tech, I, I feel like, is getting there. It gets closer and closer every year, but it's still just not the same. Mm-hmm. And um, I know a lot of players who try all these different combinations of keyboards or virtual sounds and amplifiers to kind of mimic the old school Hammond or Leslie, but there's really just nothing like having it there, you know, there's like a depth of the sound. The, the key click is always wrong, too, in my opinion. They, yeah. they never seem to get the key click right. And, right. Uh, and uh, the warmth, the warmth that's, that needs to be there to make you, make you really know. And that's the other thing, too, is like depending on how you mic the Leslie, you get some mechanical noise, maybe a little wind noise. Mm-hmm. And for some people, to them, they want to hear that, and that's how they know that you tracked real organ. Oh, you know, and then some people don't want it there at all. They yeah. want you to eliminate as much of that as possible. So. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, the rock opera that I'm playing for right now, we've been going through that. You know, placement of the mics. And, oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> That's recording. Honestly, is like an hour and forty five minutes of trying to place the mics properly and get mm-hmm. the get a good sound, and then yeah, a half an hour of track. <laughs> I get. Yeah, it must be. For the, for the most part, that's been my experience with it. Interesting. Yeah. That said, you know, all the studio stuff, and I mean, it sounds, it sounds great. What would you say is your favorite live performance? Do you have, a, like, a, the, the gig that just... That I did, or... Mm-hmm. or d- some people are like, the gig I'm playing right now is my favorite gig. And then there may be something that stands oh, out man. in your mind as, you know, like, that was an amazing gig, I'll never forget it. Well, the, I played the Opry... Um, and that was a big deal for me. Absolutely. I played it, um, honestly, less than a year before I moved to town. I played an Easter Sunday church service there. And I... Um, so you came down here and tried Nashville out before you moved, or...? Um, I did, yeah. I, so... I had, a f- I had two friends, um, one who I've lost touch with a bit, but I had... Two friends who were living in Nashville way before I even thought about moving down here. And my first trip down to Nashville, when the idea kind of got put in my head, I went down and visited that friend, and I stayed with him. Gotcha. And that helps. Absolutely. And this was almost a year and a half before I moved. And that was my initial scouting, and that was kind of when I said, I need to move to this place. I was totally enamored with it. I mean... I I looked at Broadway, and I honestly, I had every intention to just march myself down there and do nothing but play Broadway gigs all all the time, because I was very much, at the time, in that mental space of playing cover bands, that's how you make money. Yeah. And I was like, I'm just going to play, you know, 12 hours on Broadway all day when I moved to town. Yeah. And I ended up not really doing that. I ended up getting more into the artist side of things, uh, like we talked about. But... I visited with him. I was enamored with Broadway. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever seen in my life. I have different thoughts on that now, like most people who live here. And uh, it, well, it's um, ah, it's not for everybody, but I, I I love it. But I I think also 
there's something to be said for it's really cool the first you know couple months that you live in Nashville and then you kind of like man all these tourists and all these people trying to party <laughs> I basically only go downtown if I'm playing or I'm going to see someone who yeah. I know playing yeah these days yeah but I saw that and then I was also just very enamored with the city and the pace of life southern hospitality I, I you know the the vibe of the northeast is very like cold do what you need to do go 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 <laughs> no rest relaxation ever grind 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 it's really cold out we're all miserable all the time that's <laughs> that's kind of my thing with the northeast so Moving down to the south was like a real change pace for me and definitely a breath of fresh air. So I was enamored with it and I made two more visits. I made a visit to visit a friend from Connecticut who had since moved down in the interim while I was waiting to move down. And then I also made another trip to kind of like scout out places and everything. And I ended up not getting a place on that trip. I, I came home empty handed. And I ended up having to rent an Airbnb for like two weeks while I tried to find a place. Okay. So it was pretty, it was, uh, it was intense and it definitely took some financial resources to kind of get started and established yeah. down here. Definitely. And then um, how did you start meeting people? What, what would you, you know, say was your, the best way that you... Well, I was really fortunate because the friend of mine who moved down um, has the gift of gab. He is <laughs> yeah. he is an extrovert in every sense of the world. Yeah. And he is very, very good at meeting people, making friends. He's just a lovable guy. No one has anything bad to say about this dude. You know, it's just right. it's like, Oh, I know that guy, he's awesome. That's his name's Dean Perficado. He's he's a he's a really good dude. And so he was monumental in introducing me to people because you know, you could drop him in the middle of a desert and he'd be friends with everybody in a matter of <laughs> three weeks. That's, that's just what he does. So gotcha. he, he had already kind of made some, um, you know, contacts and planted some roots. So I started meeting people that way. But then he is very much kind of wrapped up in the pop country world and the songwriter world of things. So most of the people I met through him are, you know, focused in those lenses but then I met a lot of people by going to the open jam sessions. And in yeah. particular, the one on Monday nights at Bourbon Street Blues and Boogie here in town. And yeah. then Carol Lippman's jam on Tuesday night. And through there, I started meeting different players. That's actually how I got hooked up with Loud Jams. I met Val Lepeshka. I, I think I'm massacring his last name. Sorry, Val, if you're listening. <laughs> I love you, man. Um, so I met Val and... Uh, he introduced me to Tyson Leslie, and Tyson Leslie got me in with Loud Jams, and I met a bunch of people through Loud Jams. Yeah. And then as I started to become more ubiquitous, you know, at the jam sessions, out and about in town, playing gigs, being seen, it all just kind of snowballs from there. Yeah. And you start building. One thing leads to another. Yeah. You start to, you get introduced to this person who introduces you to that person. But that's provided that you don't get a bad reputation along the way. <laughs> like, if you go and you play a gig with a bunch of players and you do a bad job, yeah, ouch. You know, yeah. It, your career can be over like that. I mean, you don't, you don't want anyone to think of you as not solid. So, in the early days, I was super focused on bringing my A game 100% to everything I did. Yeah. Um, because I knew that those players 
would be judging me, and I did not want to be judged as, like, unfit to be called for a gig. Yeah. Nowadays, now that I have more stuff coming into me, I'm a little pickier and choosier. I pass on some stuff and things like that, but in the beginning, I took everything. Yeah. Anything that got thrown my way, I took it, and I made sure that I, like, killed it, you know? Yeah. So. And you mentioned earlier making charts is the way to do that, and... Yeah, so... Do you have a practice routine for the way that you handle, you know, being, making sure that you're ready? So, sometimes being a musician is about, you know, doing an adequate job with an inadequate amount of time. Um, True. Just... Very true. When it rains, it pours, it always seems like. There seem to be these periods where you have all the time in the world, you're not really doing much of anything, and then all of a sudden, you get calls and everybody wants all of the music learned in a very short amount of time and so you do what you have to do I mean I I remember days where I would wake up I'd start the charting I'd do all the charting I'd shed everything two to three times and then I would go to the rehearsal and would not eat that day because that's just what I had to do yeah in general (laughs) prep for me like in an ideal time frame starts you know, and again, it depends a lot on the gig and the volume of the gig. So, like, the Talking Heads gig that you and I talked about earlier, I spent a month in prep for that. Okay. That was just, like, a month of doing nothing but trilling that stuff day in and day out. Because, like we said, every song had, like, five patches, um, all the sound design, and then literally every song has a keyboard solo. Yeah. Or, like, two keyboard solos. This is a massive amount of work. But anyways... Yeah. I digress. So uh, a normal a normal gig, depending on how much music you have to learn, I'm going to start learning that material maybe three to five days, ideally, before then. And it will start with me charting everything yeah. unless charts have been provided. So that's the, that's the first thing is me sitting down, listening to the instrument, making sure I have a chart. Then there's me listening to it really closely for parts yeah. and fills as well too so that's the other thing too is i try to play the fills that are on the record unless i'm specifically told i have permission to do otherwise right um right so i get get it all charted um i figure out all the little parts i need to play and then i spend two to three passes on the tune making sure that i can play it correctly making sure that it's solid and that's that's the normal routine and that that is really just a function of when it has to be done, it has to be done. Like, yeah. there is, there's always an end date, right? There's like a rehearsal that you need to make where you need to have all the material ready because the rehearsal is not really for you to work things out. The rehearsal is for oh, yeah. the artist to work out and play with you guys. And the whole point is you're supposed to be solid around the artist and the artist is there to, you know, make sure that they're in shape. And yeah. that's that's kind of I, I was lucky. The very first artist I started playing for, the MD, her name's Amanda McCoy. She she is an incredible bass player. Really respect her as a musician and a music director. But she basically that band has always had a really really professional vibe around it. And the standard was you show up to rehearsal prepared, ready to go, yeah. with your songs learned and all your parts down. And if you're not see you later yeah so absolutely so i'm glad that i got you know kind of subjected to that right from the beginning because it's been the standard 
Now, you should always go into the rehearsal, in my opinion, like that. And if that's not quite the vibe that's going on, so be it. But at least, you know, you're... Yeah. The, the problems are not coming from you in that case. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> right. So I don't ever want to be the weak link in it's a the rehearsal feeling. or the gig. Yeah. Yeah, so, it feels bad. So sometimes I just... you <laughs> As a musician... You need to drop everything and make sure that you're going to be ready for the gig. Yeah. If you can't be ready for the gig, don't take the gig. You yeah. Know? That's kind of the, that's sort of the thing. So practice, honestly, can be, it can be no minutes a day depending on what's going on. Yeah. And it can be all day depending on what's going on. Exactly. Um, yeah. I really don't have like a normal routine where. Um, I get to sit down and parse work out because that's just not how work comes into me. It comes mm-hmm. in in fits and spurts. Yeah. So sometimes I'm super, super busy, and other times I get to twiddle my thumbs a little bit. Yeah. But I think you need those days, too, as yes. well. You need to yes, you sometimes do. not touch your instrument. So. Yes. Yeah, it feeds. It's like stalking the trout pond, basically. Yeah. <laughs> with With other life things. Right, that Help right, you uh, right. remember why you want to play exactly. great music. Yeah. Um, if you, let's see, what was I going to, oh, let's, okay, so let's say you're going to use the charts on your gig. Well, how would you read them? Do you put them on like a iPad or something? So I've been playing with, you know, main stage for so long. I feel like this whole podcast is an advertisement for, <laughs> for main stage. <laughs> hey, Apple, if you want to sponsor me, that'd be great. You know? For real. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so... Main stage has this capability where you can paste a custom image into the background oh, that's great. of any given patch. Mm-hmm. So as I change patches, my charts are automatically there. That's great. And for that's... some, in some instances, I don't even look at them anymore, but they're yeah. up there if I need them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, you know, that's a good plan, I think. Um, yeah. It's, we have to keep up with a lot of different people. Absolutely. Um, it sounds like you are. I mean, with six different artists, for sure. It's it's just a lot of information to keep up with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they have, you know, maybe, depends on the sets they play, but, you know, anywhere between 30 to 50 tunes between each artist. Yeah. If they play shorter sets, that might be 15 to 20. Right. You know, so there's all of that. But then those are just the artists that I play with regularly now. I have done so many one-offs or gigs for this person or that person or this band or that band with this set list. I mean, I think it's pretty easy to say I've probably charted in excess of 1,500 songs oh, yeah. since I moved to Nashville. Oh, wow. You keep them all? Yeah, I mean, I have... So everything's on the computer, and then I have all the hard copies. Yeah. And I just have these binders that are full of charts. Now, not yes. all of these charts are original songs. A lot of them are cover songs, too. And, sure. of course, there are these... Um, Big Dropbox folders that a lot of the downtown players keep up with that have a collection of, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in vogue downtown, if you will. Yeah. You know, charts for that kind of thing. But they don't really have everything. So, um, you know, sometimes you can cheat a little bit and you can see a chart. But even then, when you see someone else's work, you can't just trust that it's correct. So you got to go over it. Right. So a lot of times, too, uh, you know, I have a... Not everybody charts the same way yeah people use different symbols for stuff some people are really messy some people do a clean job and so (laughs) sometimes it's just helpful to look at what you know you know make your own chart make your own chart if you can can. yeah absolutely definitely because you just just don't know yeah you know the other thing too is like you get a chart from a bass player 
it doesn't even have qualities of chords in it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you're... Some songs require, d you know, different charts for different musicians, yeah. but the, different instruments, I think. So, you know, you just get yeah. handed something and it says flat five. <laughs> and you're like, well, okay. Is it flat five fully diminished? Is it half diminished? Like, what's going on here? You right. Know? Like, so... Sometimes it's really just helpful to do your own stuff. Yes. You know, so you can put in what you need to do your job. It's it's really meant to be a cheat sheet where if you're in a bind and you've forgotten something, you can look up there. That's it, and yeah. And it's there and you're not going to make a mistake because of it. That's it, in yeah. a nutshell. Yeah, definitely. And then you can always refer back to it as well, too, just in case. Yeah. Well, wow. So I've got one more question, and then, you know, if you want to bring up anything else, or would you like to play something? Sure. Be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll tinkle the ivories here. Um, you mentioned one offs. Yeah. So what's your favorite part of those and your least favorite part of those? Uh, <laughs> can I just say I, I hate them? I, um, no, I, that's not true. I so think a lot can of be challenging. A lot of one offs that I've done have started as one-offs and have eventually led to more consistent work. Um, so for instance, one of the cover bands I play with, I did one gig with them the first year I moved to Nashville. They didn't call me again for a whole other year. They didn't have a need for a sub until a whole other year down the line. And then I did a few with them. And then finally they asked me, the other keyboard player wanted to downplay his role in the band they asked me to take all these fill dates. So the the beauty of one-offs is that they sometimes lead to incredible, incredible things. But they can also be a huge pain in the butt. But after talking to a lot of musicians, they're just part of the grind here. They really are. You just, you need them, um, unless you move to Nashville and you get really lucky and like in your third week, you sign with a national artist who plays, you know, 150 to 200 dates on the road a year, you are going to need something to fill your time. And you, there are ways, there are different things that players do to do that. They do studio work. A lot of guys do the downtown thing. And a lot of people take one-offs. Um, and so I've done mostly a lot of the one-offs. They're a great challenge, but they are also absolutely a lot of work for very little reward. I've sort of started doing less of those if I don't really like the music or if I um, don't feel that it's financially compensated enough for my time there. Yeah. Or if I also feel like it will truly just be a one-off and it doesn't you know, have... Lead to something else? Doesn't lead to something else. So it, it just means that you're going out of town to go play a gig and... And yeah. the, it's, you're going to be on the road a whole lot in a short amount of time. I, here's what I would say. If you're new to town and you're not working, take a one-off. Like, yeah. you should be working. It's better to be working than not working. Yeah. When you're busy and you have plenty of work, at that point you can kind of say, eh, I don't really feel like doing this, you know? You can, you can make that, you know, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? You can decide, you know, if it's worth it financially to do the one-off or not do the one-off. You know, if it's worth yeah. the headache uh, and the stress that it brings of learning a lot of tunes in a short while. Yeah. A lot of one-offs can be fun, too, depending on what the music is. Yeah. You know? And sometimes... And the location. And the location. 
um, and the people. You know, I think the gold standard, the whole two out of three thing always really holds true for me. So you should take the gig if it's got good music, good people, or good, you know, good pay. And if it has two out of the three, you should take the gig. Oh, that's, there's a gem right there. Yeah. That's a good piece of advice. That's so, real solid. Good people, good music, take the gig. Yeah. Good people, good pay, take the gig. Good yeah. music, uh, you know, good pay, take the gig. <laughs> right. And if you get three out of the three, then you have an you have an incredible, awesome gig. Isn't you know? that the truth? Yeah. But, you know, two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> right. As, as the song goes, right? <laughs> That's awesome. One right? out of three, you're probably wasting your time. I've so. never heard that, and I like it. It's really yeah. good. Um, so, you know, really, like, all three is, like, I don't know, dream world. It's like, a, what we're all shooting gig, for. Yeah. And, we want to play music with people we like that we dig yeah. and get compensated for it. Be know, those things, I might add. Yeah. You know, just try, yeah. strive to be those things. Strive to ask, ask for what you're worth. And be cool. Be That's cool. a big thing, too, which is you may ask for what you're worth, and that may price you out of doing some gigs. But then the flip side of that is is that, you know, you separate the wheat from the chaff, right? And you get to, you get people who are serious, you know, about doing that kind of stuff. So I think I remember I got asked to do a travel gig down to Georgia. It was going to take me down there and back. They wanted to, they, they didn't have anything to pay me. And I was like, well, you got to pay me something for me to do this. And they were like, okay, we can offer you $40. I'm like... <laughs> I'm good. You guys enjoy go down to Georgia. You know, and it's like, well, we're looking for someone to get in with us on the ground up. And I'm like, that's not really what I do at this stage of my career. You know, um, I think it's all about what you want to do. If you want to be a professional sideman, a, a professional player, which is what I do. You know, I'm in my 30s. Um, you know, you have to compensate those people what they're worth. Um, yeah. You really do. And so I have learned how to ask for more with my time in Nashville. And when I was here, I just assumed, you know, that there was going to be someone who would undercut me. And so I should just take everything and accept whatever it is they offer me. And now I actively negotiate. I will never play anything for free anymore um, unless it's like one of those special shows, like a loud chance or something that we've talked about. And yeah. even then, I, I do less of that now than I used to. But... Or a charity yeah. show, perhaps. Or a charity if it's, show. If it's one yeah, absolutely. Event. If the show's for charity. And there's some good ones here. Yeah. Really good ones. Absolutely. But, yeah. So I'll do that kind of thing. But other than that, you know, I expect to be paid for my time, and I expect to be paid what I'm what I'm worth. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. We, you got to ask for what you're worth. <laughs> we believe in our profession. I mean, it's... Um, and if you're professional, like, you know, yeah. doing the work that you've done... Well, that's the thing, charged. too. You need to... If you're going to ask for more, you're... You need to have, you know, the stuff to back it up. You right. can't, um, right. if you ask for extra money and you show up to rehearsal unprepared, your parts aren't learned, and you sound like crap, then, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't right. You can't really do that kind of thing. So, right. but you can ask for what you're worth if you, you know, build a reputation about doing your job. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's basic. It's do your job, you know. It's yeah. it's listen to the record, learn the song the way it's supposed to be learned, learn the parts on the always learn the parts on the record. That is always the best place to start. It is better to play everything exactly like the record um, at the rehearsal at the gig. Doesn't matter what it is, artist gig, cover band gig, doesn't matter. 
play it like the record, start there. Yeah. And if whoever's in charge tells you that you have leniency, you then you can deviate from there. But other than that, you should show up. You should have everything exactly like the record. Yeah. And you should know the music, be on time, you know. This is basic stuff. Right. Do your job, essentially. Yeah. And then at, if you do your job enough and you consistently prove to people that you are, you know, a solid professional who is consistent, then you can start to ask for a little more. So. Yeah. Well, would you... You want to play some stuff? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I've got, you know, a piano here. I've got... Um, Got a Nord C2 combo organ. Yeah. Um, you take your pick. Yeah, I'll play this piano here. Okay. I'm going to just move the microphone back a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. To make sure that we don't... Um, I guess I'll just... Just just free improv here. That might be interesting for them to hear. Great.
time. That was cool. You want me to play a real piece now? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's totally up to you, man. This, you know, that sounded kind of like Copeland. Oh, kinda, yeah? Kind of Gershwinish. I mean, there was sort of like elements of... So that's an um, exercise I picked up from John Medeski. Yeah? Where he just, he says you should just start with like your practice routine with 10 to 15 minutes of just complete improvisation, no breaks, and um, just work that muscle of just generating continuous music and just improvising on the fly. That's you great. Know? Yeah. I love that. And that's that's John Medeski of Medeski Martin Wood. It's like a, oh, excuse me. It's like a famous um, organ group. I love that organ group, idea. Know? Yeah. I'm, I like to do it with my students. Like, yeah. you know, every time they come into a lesson, let's just play some stuff together for yeah, three minutes. Yeah, definitely. Just sit down and just play. Definitely. That's a great idea. I yeah. love that idea. Let's play some... You never know what you're going to come up with, do you? Uh, yeah, I'll do a piece and uh, you probably have enough at that point, right? Sure, it's up yeah. to you. I, I love it.
was a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You guys just have so much to think about now that we talked <laughs> really? about. Okay. Yeah. Um, awesome. Like I love that. that I just love the idea of the improv at the beginning of when you see. Oh that yeah. Play. That's so yeah. great. That's so that's so organic. That's to me. That's you know that is what guitar players do. Yeah. Um, they do have a more organic. Um, yeah. situation than we do. Our thing's heavy, you know. It faces the wall. Right. It doesn't face people. It's they, so I went to their summer camp when I was like just getting out of school. Um, and they would perform like a 45 minute to an hour set of all improvised music, the three of them. So all, you know. Together. Together, listening to one another. Yeah. Improvising as three musicians completely in real time. It was yes. pretty wild to see. So. Yes. Well, I didn't talk to you much about your, you know, relationships with playing with other people, but oh yeah, um, that bond, that synergy, yeah. you know, and you had a trio, so I guess oh yeah, absolutely. You, uh, Getting tight with people is important. Knowing knowing players and knowing how they play around you, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, we we have a really great profession. <laughs> yes, we do. It's it's okay. not bad. It's not a bad way to make money. Well, thank you. <coughs> thanks so much for being here. <coughs> Ooh, I'm um, sorry. So sorry you've been sick. Yeah, um, you probably want to maybe wipe down the keyboard. (laughs) Oh, not worried. But thanks again. And take care. Yeah, absolutely.